Okay, I guess we haven't totally fallen apart since uh, our pastor's on sabbatical. And you know, I think a healthy church is one where everyone is involved and every one of us should be able to stand up here and if tapped, share the word of the Lord. I remember when we went to Turkey as missionaries, somebody told me all of us should be ready to preach, pray, or die at a moment's notice. <laughs> So, I hope maybe next Sunday, if somebody taps you, you would be ready to preach, pray, or, if necessary, die. <laughs> so, it is delightful to look out on all of your faces. I don't get to usually see you from this perspective. I have some friends visiting here, and in fact, I didn't invite them because I didn't want them to think I was inviting them to hear me speak. But anyway, welcome to some friends who came along as my unknown fan club. <laughs> anyway, uh, as Eric mentioned, uh, I was one of the founding members of this congregation, and believe me, it looked very different in those early days than it does now. So as I was thinking and praying about what God would have me share this morning, I thought, you know, I'd love history. I'd love us to understand our roots, the DNA that's part of who we are. And so I want to go back to those early days and share some of the history. Many of you are new to this congregation, weren't there. Alan, Kathy, and Steve were there in those early days. Anybody else here? I'm not sure. Uh, Lloyd was there, okay? You probably weren't part of the very first cell group, though, were you? Anyway, some old-timers here, but many of you are new. Um, some of you I don't know, don't even know your names, don't know you very well. And as I was preparing, this old African proverb came to mind. Some of you probably don't know that I actually grew up in Africa. My parents took me there as a missionary kid when I was one year old, and I grew up in Ethiopia until I was 14. So those explain a little bit of my African roots. But any of this African proverb says that when an old person dies, his library burns. Just think about that. When an old person dies, the library burns. So I'd like to share a few stories from my library this morning with you, and I'm really hoping that this prompts sharing from libraries, from each of our libraries, because truly, that's how Christian fellowship is born. We are, after all, Mechanicsburg Christian Fellowship. And I wonder what you think of when you hear that word, fellowship. I hope you just don't think of punch and cookies and small talk. I hope you think of deep spiritual friendship, a deep coming together, heart to heart. And not only just to be heart to heart, but heart to heart with a purpose. Because that's truly the way it happened here in the beginnings of Mechanicsburg Christian Fellowship. Some of us were meeting in our living room. We were living in Rosedale at the time and experiencing God in our midst. And our hearts were being gripped for people out there that had never heard. We invited a young single mom we knew. She started coming, plugging in. And then she told us one day, she said, you know, I'm telling the people back, she was from Marysville, actually. She said, I'm telling the people back in Marysville about this wonderful fellowship we're having. 
Now, she's a single mom, and her friend said, huh, well, can that fellowship find you a fella? <laughs> so that was kind of the idea that some people have when they hear this word fellowship. I don't know if there's any Tolkien fans out there, but remember, those books talk about the fellowship of the ring. Okay, there was a group of people who were close to each other, and they were on a mission. That's the kind of fellowship I'm talking about, and that's the kind of fellowship I hope that we are here at Mechanicsburg Christian Fellowship. But it is something of a, maybe you might call it Christianese, this word fellowship. But Jesus had 12 disciples, and he sent them out two by two to the towns and villages around Nazareth. So in 1978, I'm going to go back that far. Some of you weren't even born then. But my husband, Richard, who died two and a half years ago, was teaching at Rosedale Bible College. He was teaching a course called The Deeper Life, in which he was challenging students to go deeper with God to really get in touch with God, not just a superficial reading of the scriptures, but what does God really want from us? What is he calling us to? He was also teaching courses in missions and evangelism, church growth, church planting. Well, how can you learn those kinds of things sitting in a classroom or in a church like we are here? where you're just watching me speak. You're not participating. So Richard said to his students, I'm going to start taking you. This is a class assignment. We're going to be going. And our nearest town, the nearest town to Rosedale, was Mechanicsburg. So he said, let's go visit homes in Mechanicsburg. Let's just go knock on some doors and meet some people. So stepped out, new territory. This was new for these students. One day, they knocked on the door of a woman um, who invited them in, and uh, they asked if they could pray for her. And she said, oh, I've just got a splitting headache. She couldn't wait till they left. So they prayed for her headache. The next week, they were making their rounds again, and she sees them walking down the street, and she says, hey, come in. When you prayed for my headache, it went away. What did you say? You, you, you're, you're thinking of maybe starting a church or whatever. You want to start Bible study? She said, yeah, I'd like to have a Bible study in my house. So that's how the first Mechanicsburg, in Mechanicsburg Bible study got started in her home. Now, many of you know Lyndon and Charlene Good, the pastoral couple who ministered for many years after Richard and I left, they had been students at the Bible College and didn't have a local church that they plugged into. So when Lyndon took a job working for the water department here in Mechanicsburg, and they lived in a little house at 120 Main Street in Mechanicsburg, they said, well, why doesn't our small group that had been meeting in Rosedale, why don't we just, why don't we meet in our living room? And they invited us there to their living room. And then that way we could invite some of these people that we're starting to have Bible studies with in the town. We could just invite them to the, this home in the village. And before you know it, 
that little house was, was bursting at the seams. I still remember trying to have Sunday school with children who were jumping on the beds in the spare bedroom where we were trying to have a little bit of Sunday school. So this, there was just a lot of interest in, in what was happening here. And then we noticed across the street, a larger house, 127 North Main Street, came up for sale. And we said, well, maybe, maybe we should buy this. And so we did. And we knocked out some walls, we repainted it. And before you knew it, that building filled up with about 60 to 70 people crowding in. And there was, this, this, was, this was all happening so fast. It was almost like we didn't have time to get organized. And it wasn't all that formal. But it was bursting with new life. People were coming to Christ. They were experiencing worship, fellowship for the first time. I still remember one Sunday, a new woman came and she was there for the worship and all of a sudden she just got up and ran out. And I followed her. I thought something was wrong. And then she was, she was just shaking. She said, well, I just never experienced the power of God like this before. What's going on in here? And I tried to explain, we're just people who love Jesus. And we're gathering around him, we're sitting at his feet, we're hearing from him, we're worshiping him. And I said, do you want to be part of this? She said, oh, she said, I'm just not good enough, you know, I'm living with this guy I'm not married to, and, and you, you, just, you just don't know all the stuff I've done. And I said, church is for people like you. We come just as we are. Jesus loves us. But he doesn't leave us as we are. He changes us. There was a man who had some mental instabilities. We were all a little bit scared of him. He wandered around town. And he used to wander into the back of our church. He never took a seat. He just always stood there and he just smiled. And one day I asked him, I said, so why do you come to the church? He said, oh, he said, there's just such a good spirit in here. He said, this is our God reigns, church. That was one of the songs we sang a lot back then. Our God reigns. And truly, that's what we were wanting to announce. We were wanting to say to Mechanicsburg, our God reigns. The kingdom has come. Let's read. I think we'll get it up on the script, on the screen here, uh, Luke 4, 18 to 19. We felt as we came into Mechanicsburg and this church was getting started almost faster than we knew how to, to plant it, this was one of our theme verses. When Jesus entered the synagogue in Nazareth, he was given the scroll from the prophet Isaiah. This is quoted by Luke in chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. He has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has set me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, like my friend who ran out of the service, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus said, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing today. That day in Nazareth, Jesus was inaugurating the kingdom of God. He was kicking it off in a whole new way. And that's what we felt 
And I think that's what you feel when you're part of a new initiative, a church plant, or moving into a new territory where Christ is little known. You feel like you're announcing the coming of the kingdom. One song we used to sing a lot was taken from this verse. I'm not going to try to sing it unless Kathy wants to help me. <laughs> anyway, he sent me to preach the good news to the poor, to tell prisoners they are prisoners no more. Remember it, Alan Kathy? Tell blind people that they can see and set the downtrodden free and go tell everyone the news that the kingdom of God has come. That's the way we felt. Now, someone asked me recently, why do we have the Old Testament? You know, the New Testament tells us about Jesus. He announces his kingdom. The church is born. But why do we have the Old Testament? Well, this Isaiah passage was there in the Old Testament. These old prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, whom we're going to read from in a little bit, they saw, they were foreshadowing a day when a new kingdom would come that would be all-inclusive. It wouldn't just be the kingdom of Israel, but it would be all-inclusive, every tribe, tongue, and nation. And it was going to be different from this old covenant you know, we've been studying the book of Galatians here the last months. We've been talking about the law, how we're set free from the law. Okay, the old covenant was there. It was written on tables of stone. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. We know that. But let's read from uh, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33. This is another hint there in the Old Testament about this new day that Jesus was inaugurating. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. And I love these words. I will put my law in their minds, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. The prophet Jeremiah, there in the Old Testament, or another way to say Old Testament is Old Covenant. Under the Old Covenant, Jeremiah was looking ahead to our time, and he I'm not going to talk much about covenant. That would be a whole nother sermon and a really interesting one. But in short, a covenant, it's very different from a contract. Many of us here have rented homes or rented apartments, and we know what it is to sign a contract. You know, you pay $500,000, however much you have to pay. You make a contract, you rent the apartment. If you don't pay, you don't stay. That's a contract. But a covenant is so different. A covenant is where something that his mind becomes fully something of the other parties. And the other parties, what is theirs, becomes fully mine. There's a contractual, not a contractual, a covenantal agreement. And notice that God uses the image of marriage as he speaks of covenant. I was a husband to them. He uses that language as he talks about his relationship with the people of Israel, how he wanted there to be a covenant, but it was broken time and time again. Well, now... Under that old covenant, there were all these thou shalt nots, and thou shalt, and thou shalt not. But now God, under this new covenant, in the New Testament, he says he's writing 
his laws in our minds and in our hearts. What does that mean? Sometimes I thought it would be easier if we could just go and find out, there's a list, this is what I'm supposed to do today, okay, I'll do it. There's something more secure about finding a list of do's and don'ts, okay, if I do all this, check all these boxes, then I'm okay. There's something secure about that that we keep slipping back into. But you know what this speaks to me? We need a daily living relationship when the laws are put in our minds and written on our hearts, don't we? It speaks of every day, every minute of every day, being in touch with the Lord of the new covenant so that we understand and we can turn on a dime if God wants us to pray for someone with a headache or visit with someone who's jogging by on the street or whatever it is. God impresses those kinds of things on our hearts. And we know the old covenant said, don't kill. But as I come before God in my quiet time, he reminds me that there's a certain person that I really don't like very much. And he says, under the new covenant, in the kingdom of God, if you hate someone, if you don't like someone, it's as though you're murdering them. It's as the same. It's as bad as killing them. The new covenant really steps it up. But then we have the resources. The Holy Spirit has been poured out into our hearts, into our lives to empower us, to give us wisdom, to show us what we should and shouldn't do. Now back to the history of MCF. In 1978, when we began visiting homes, we were in essence announcing in a new way, the kingdom of God has come among you in this village. And it's not that there weren't churches here. There were, but sometimes churches get tired. Sometimes we burn out and there's need for reinforcement. And that's the way it felt when we moved into the town. I like to compare a church plant or a new initiative of some kind, either in a, a town nearby, a house nearby, or in a totally different people group. I like to compare that to uh, this image of D-Day, World War II, when the Allies landed on the beach, the beaches of Normandy, 50 miles of beach. They landed five different beaches along this 50-mile stretch. Now, World War II was not won on that day. It was nearly a whole year later in May of 1945 that the Nazis surrendered and the peace treaty to end World War II ended. And you might say, well, there was a decisive beachhead planted. Yes, that's right. And that's what it feels like for us in this season. It's like the kingdom of God has come the Allies have landed on the beach, as it were, but the kingdom of God has not come in fullness. And that's the day we look forward to, the day we long for. There's still much suffering in that year, almost a year before the peace treaty was signed. The army was trying to advance. A lot of people were still killed. Lives were lost. But yet, they moved forward with the confidence that we're going to win this war. We're going to win this war. We're on the winning side. 
And so God had much to teach us as we were moving out in this new church plant, how to fight that good fight of faith. Now, during the early days of this church, I learned what it was like to live in the trenches. And I think those of us who were here would testify to that because God began bringing all kinds of broken people, people who were hungry for healing and deliverance. But God had a lot of work to do in our lives to toughen us up and to teach us how to be these ministers of hope and healing that he's calling all of us to be and that I hope all of us in this congregation feel called to be. One of the first things we did after we moved to a little house on Walnut Street here in Mechanicsburg was take in a young mother and her three children. She was fleeing an abusive, alcoholic husband, and she needed refuge. We had three children of our own, but we took in these other three children. Well, the next morning, I woke up to strange noises, and I looked, and these three children of our guests were rummaging through all the cabinets of my kitchen looking for food. They were hungry. I set out a box of Cheerios, and the oldest boy dumped the whole box into his bowl. I set out a loaf of bread. It disappeared. These children had been food-deprived. I wept as I set food before them and watched them eat it. I said, no, we're going to have lunch. This is just breakfast. We're going to have lunch, and we're going to have supper. And they would just look at me with wide eyes, not knowing if they could believe me. Then another morning, a distraught woman stumbled in as we were eating breakfast. She was crying. She was disheveled. We gathered around her. We encircled her with love. We prayed. We called our family. We all gathered around her and ministered to her, helped her discern next steps, what maybe she should do next. We, wasn't, we weren't sure what was going on. We felt very much in over our heads. After she left, my innocent little six-year-old daughter looks up at me and she says, Mommy? What's rape? And I thought, God, are we ruining our children by dragging them in to this kind of warfare? But God whispered, no. You're equipping, you're equipping your family for ministry. One day, I was very distraught as I tried to keep food on the table for all our many guests and sought to meet the needs of my own family as well as other children and adults who sought, sought sanctuary in our home on Walnut Street. My husband kindly noticed that I was at the end of my rope. <laughs> and he intervened. He said, I'm going to take all the children out and we're going to pull weeds and hoe corn. He said, you need to have some quiet time. I did. I very much did. And I was so grateful for his sensitivity in seeing what we need when we get in over our heads. So in the luxury of the quiet house, I pulled out my Bible. I noticed where my lapsed reading program picked up and it was in the book of Revelation. And I was actually a little bit annoyed. And I thought to myself, I wish I were reading in the Gospels or the Epistles. 
it would be so much more comforting. I don't want to read in Revelation about all these weird beasts and dragons and stuff. I said, I, I can't understand Revelation anyway. Why would I have to, what would God have for me in Revelation? But being the dutiful rule follower that I am, I just kept on reading with what I was scheduled to read the next day. I hope you're not like me. <laughs> but anyway, God really met me in Revelations, believe it or not. That day, I was scheduled to read Revelation 19. There we have it up on the board. Revelation 19, 7 to 8. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. And this is one of the places in Revelation where sometimes they tell you what the symbols stand for. Sometimes they don't, and you have to try to figure it out. But this time it did. And it has this little commentary, and it says, Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. And I just stopped and started weeping. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Who is the bride? It's us. It's the church. And how do we make ourselves ready for the wedding supper of the Lamb? Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. And I sensed God saying to me at that time, when I so desperately needed it, Jewel, as you feed and clothe needy children, as you open your heart and your home, you are my beloved bride, growing more beautiful every day as you choose to adorn yourself for me in righteous acts. That's what we're called to, church. That's what we're called to. To clothe ourselves. And I never looked at menial jobs in quite the same way. There was a new joy. I realized I was doing this for Jesus. I was doing it for him. And I was just as excited as a bride putting on her jewelry. Her wedding gown. The righteous acts. Oh, but yeah, I still did uh, have a few problems. There was Christmas Eve when we decided it was going to be just our family. We were going to send everyone else home because we wanted some time just as our family. And I was going to get out a nice white tablecloth. I was going to get my china, my wedding china, out of the closet. We hadn't used it. And I was going to set a nice table. And we were going to have oyster stew, something my husband loved. And we were kind of poor. Um, so we couldn't afford oysters, but we could get, you know, just a few, enough to make one pot of oyster stew, but not enough for guests. <laughs> so we had planned, we had agree agreed on this. Well, one mistake was that my husband said, I'm just going to slip down to the detention center and visit this young guy from our youth group who had landed up in the juvenile detention center. But we had heard they were sending all the juveniles home for Christmas. Well, Richard calls me from the detention center, and I knew he was hemming and hawing, but he said, Jewel, he said, this young boy's family didn't want him. 
on Christmas Eve. He said, um, he was a member of our youth group. Um, do, I, I know we agreed we shouldn't have anybody for Christmas Eve, but do you think uh, I could bring him? <laughs> I didn't want to be the innkeeper <laughs> turning away Jesus from the... <laughs> so I said, sure, bring him, bring him. So we had this young man, and he actually liked oyster stew, and we had a wonderful Christmas Eve with him. Those are the kinds of things that God was teaching me and teaching us as a church planting group. But he had more to teach me about how he loves me with an everlasting love and how he loves all peoples and how he wants me to love all peoples, even juvenile delinquents on Christmas Eve. All are of great value. God has no favorites. He has intimates. But he has no favorites. We are all created in his image. No matter how scarred or twisted or broken we feel we are. Well, sometime after this, we had our first church camp out. There was a new family who had been coming to church. They had two teenage boys that had just gotten baptized. We were so excited by this new life and growth. Families, youth coming to the Lord. We got to the lake, campsite. These two young lads jumped in the water and swam out to a raft in the middle of the lake. But as they began to swim back, one of them cried out for help and sank under the water. There was no lifeguard. I was the only one there who knew how to swim, and it all happened so fast. I'd just arrived. I wasn't in a swimming suit. I was wearing a long jean skirt and a flannel shirt, and I was just like, well, somebody should rescue him, but, uh, but I had all these excuses, and as I paused on the shore for those fatal seconds, caring more about how I looked and not wanting to strip to my underwear to rescue a drowning teenager, Finally, I flung off my skirt and ran in. With the help of others who formed a human chain, we found his body under the murky water and pulled him out. We tried to resuscitate him on the beach. The squad came. They got breath back in his lungs. The doctors were cautiously optimistic. But sadly, his brain, deprived of oxygen for too long, swelled. And his life was lost. And our little church had its first funeral. Through that whole experience, God was gentle but firm in exposing my lack of love, my selfish concern for my image, caring more about how I looked than for someone who was lost. Now let's go to Revelation 21, more of Revelation. <laughs> Here the Apostle John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. All that we're experiencing now had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. One of my friends in Turkey read this and she said, 
isn't there going to be a beach in heaven? <laughs> Why isn't there going to be any sea? And I myself was a little bit nonplussed. I just got back from a week at the beach. I think going to the beach is kind of fun. What does this mean? There's no longer any sea. Well, I think it, here I'll do the little parenthetical explanation. <laughs> In the ancient world, the sea was perceived as a hostile environment populated by unknown monsters, sea serpents, leviathan. But the new heaven and the new earth that were coming down, they were hospitable, not hostile. And as we in our fellowships, in our small groups, in our families, as we are those hospitable places, we begin to taste a little bit. We glimpse a little bit of this new heaven and this new earth. It's that little beachhead that's been established on the beaches of Normandy. Hey, there's a safe place here. There's a hospitable spot here. John continues, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men. He will live with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying, or pain. All of these things we're currently living with in the trenches. Death, mourning, crying, pain. We're in the old order now. But in our fellowships, we have glimpses of this new Jerusalem. When the old order of things passes away completely, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. So to return to our symbol of D-Day, the Allies landing on the beach and marching east, invading enemy territory, reclaiming it for its rightful owners. Yes, many died in the skirmishes, battles, and bombing raids. But here, in Revelation 21, we get a glimpse of V-Day, <laughs> victory in Europe Day, when World War II is finally over. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. How we long for that day. <laughs> but what do we do in the meantime? We've landed on the beaches. We're advancing. We're still in the battle. And that's what led to the founding of this church. In 1978, we were members at Shiloh Mennonite Church in Resaca. I was teaching a youth class at Shiloh Church, and we were studying through the book of Acts. Excuse me, Luke. The book of Luke. We probably did Acts too, but anyway, this time we were in Luke. And this Sunday, we read Luke 14, 12 to 14, where Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends your brothers or relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, 
the crippled, the lame, the blind. Don't we hear an echo of Jesus announcing the kingdom? This is who I'm coming for. This is who I want you to be proclaiming my kingdom. I want you to be opening the blind eyes, setting at liberty those who are oppressed. Those are the kinds of people you should be inviting over and you will be blessed. Because Jesus doesn't bless us just so that we sit there in ease and comfort enjoying the blessing. He blesses us so that through us, his blessing flows to all of these people. I asked the youth, probably 12 to 15 youth, there in my youth women, youth girls, in my class, I said, um, so what do you think about this verse? I said, uh, do any of you know someone who is on welfare? It was very quiet in the room. And then one by one, they all shook their heads, no. No, none of us knew anyone on welfare. But as we stepped out and began visiting homes in Mechanicsburg to proclaim in fresh ways the kingdom of God is among you, do you know some of the first people who invited us into their homes for Bible study were people on welfare? This need that we have both of each other and the Lord and the mission he sends us on in a very interesting way is an integral part of who we are as human beings. I listened to an interesting sermon by Tim Keller from Redeemer Church in New York, and he mentioned that this need for deep spiritual friendship, companionship, fellowship, he said this need was in us before the fall. And that's right. God made the create, created the world. He said, it's good. And then he said, there are the animals all in couples, <laughs> and the man is alone. So I'm going to create woman. So there's community. There's fellowship. There's togetherness. It's not good to be alone. God wants us to be in fellowship, in connection, in deep spiritual friendship with each other. That's the essence of who we are. Pre-fall, yes, many things happen to warp that, but that need, need, <laughs> one need that we have is there before the fall. It's an integral part of who we are. So thanks for letting me share some of these books from my library, and I'd love to hear more of the books from your libraries, and I hope in the days ahead as we continue to learn to know each other in small groups and fellowship meals and so on. But in closing, I'd like to summarize some of the founding DNA that has gone into this body of believers. Because those of you who are here today, you don't remember those early days. A few of you do, but many of you don't. And uh, we understand something about physical DNA. We understand what makes for blue eyes and for curly hair. But let's pay attention to the spiritual DNA that goes into our lives, into our families, into our churches. So I want to just kind of summarize uh, four points here as we, as we close this meditation. Firstly, 
we will dedicate ourselves to knowing Christ and making him known both near and far. We've been talking about Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. The good news of the kingdom, this inauguration, is that's to happen among all peoples. And that has been part of the DNA of this congregation ever since the beginning. After we had been here as part of the church planning team for only three to four years, this church sent us out to Turkey. When we came to Mechanicsburg, there was already a Methodist church, a Baptist church, a Church of Christ and Christian Union. There were churches already here. When we moved to Gaziantep, Turkey, a city of half a million people, there wasn't a single Christian, much less a church of any kind in that city. So that's been part of the DNA of this congregation. I talked to a woman who came here uh, some years ago, and she said, I always wanted to be part of a church that sent out missionaries. I knew that was something we were supposed to be doing, but I never was. She said, I'm so excited to be part of a church. At that point, we were really behind the Millers who had gone to China. And, uh, and the Hostetters who are coming two weeks from now who have been working in Brazil. And the church in its first decade, even in its first five years, was already sending us out to Turkey. So that's been part of the DNA of this church. Yes, if we're going to be busy in our own backyards, we're going to be busy in backyards on the other side of the ocean or wherever, whatever people group, we're going to be there. We're going to be faithful and God will call some of us, I believe, to operate in each of those Jerusalems, Judeas, Samarias, and ends of the earth. Secondly, we will not reject anyone the Lord has received. We strive to welcome and disciple in the way of Christ everyone the Lord brings. Now notice, I said we're a welcoming church, welcoming and discipling. We stand for something. The church I went to in Pennsylvania before moving back here to Ohio was an inner city church. We had a lot of people coming out of homelessness and addiction transvestites, all kinds of people stumbling into the back of our church. As you'd walk into the church, you'd sometimes walk through a haze of smoke as people were smoking on the porch. And one of the elders and I were walking in together, and he smiled at me, and he said, I hope we always have smokers at our church, but not the same ones. I hope we always have smokers, but not the same ones. Yes, you come, bring your smoke, bring your garbage, whatever. But get cleaned up as we sit at the feet of Jesus together. And we understand there's a purpose for which we're living. The proclamation of the good news of the kingdom right here and everywhere. I hope we always have whatever at Mechanicsburg, but not the same ones. Jesus wants to set us free from the bondages of sin and addiction, whatever it is that we're struggling with, we welcome, we're a welcoming church, welcoming and discipling everyone in the way of Christ, everyone that the Lord brings. Thirdly, we desire to study, know, and follow the word of God together, obeying the nudges of the Holy Spirit as he brings light to the word. One of the principles of this church from the very beginning was we will learn to walk in the spirit. We're not going to just follow some kind of rote law. We want 
everyone to learn how to pray in the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, to minister in the Spirit. And fourthly, we commit to walking in the light, confessing our sins to one another, bearing each other's burdens spiritually and materially, and experiencing true spiritual friendship and fellowship together, that inborn need for companionship and community that is part of what it means to be human. Well, I'm now a grandma, and I saw Carol May was here. She's a grandma, too. And we're old enough to remember having Bible studies in the home of Brenda Brown. When Pastor Joey was just a naughty little boy running around interrupting our Bible study on Proverbs 31, where we were trying very hard how to, to learn how to become virtuous women. But now that naughty little boy is our pastor. What does that say about God's work in our lives? His transformation is taking us from where we're not and growing us into become things we didn't think we could ever become. Now our church meets in a lovely air-conditioned facility with padded benches, not in a crowded living room. <laughs> our children have a spacious hall. The youth have lots of room. The children don't have to be jumping on the spare beds. There's even good coffee in the lobby. But what matters most to God? Are we dedicated to knowing him and making him known? Is that at the core of our beings? As much as my DNA, brown eyes, <laughs> curly hair, I want that spiritual DNA to be at the core of my being. And I pray that it can be that for each of you, that you will hunger and thirst to know God and to make him known, because it's such good news. It's such good news. I think we become jaded here. We don't realize how good we have it. Richard and I used to travel to many different countries. I still remember in Honduras when we were there, someone we didn't even know got down on his knees in front of us and took hold of our feet. And he said, thank you for bringing the gospel to my people. And we hadn't brought the gospel to his people personally, but we were part of a church, an organization that had supported missionaries that had gone there and had helped to stop the human trafficking, the drug gangs, had worked in that community, helped to bring new life and hope. And he wanted to get down and express his appreciation. We were a symbol of all of us. We were a symbol of the broader church that had sent those messengers of good news. Richard was visiting in Indonesia at one time, way back in the jungle, and there was a whole people movement to Christ among the, um, boy, I'm forgetting the name of the people group, something starting with D. Anyway, as they met these people, they said, and, and they asked them, so what difference has the gospel made in your community? And they said the strangest thing. They said, we're not afraid of the birds anymore. And we said, what? <laughs> they said, 
well, before we heard that Jesus sets us free, we believed, now we know it's superstitious, but we believed that the first bird that tweets in the morning will tell you whether or not it's safe to go out and plant your crops that day or whether you're going to be bit by a snake. And so some days we wouldn't even go out and work in the fields at all because the wrong kind of bird tweeted in the morning. <laughs> it, it almost seems funny, comical for us to hear these kinds of stories because we don't realize the good news <laughs> that the kingdom of God brings and is bringing to all corners of the world. Now, as we close, I'd like to have the Lord's Prayer put up on, on the board there so we can read it together. I'd like us to stand together in closing. And I want to pray. I've, I've, I've printed this here because it's a more contemporary version that I hope we can just pray from our hearts. And I love how this speaks of God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And remember, we're part of the troops on earth. <laughs> We've landed. <laughs> We've heard the gospel. <laughs> We've been privileged. We've been blessed by knowing the good news. And now we are called. So let's pray together in closing the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, you are dismissed unless anyone wants to do anything else. <laughs>